All right, let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much once again for this privilege of gathering together as family. Thank you for returning our missionaries to us in healthy form. Thank you for giving us the opportunity to send them and to rejoice with whatever good labor you put before them, whatever labor you accomplished through them uh, during their two weeks in India. What a fantastic thing that is. We're so looking forward to hearing from them, Father. Please heal them. Please take care of them and uh, as they recuperate, Father. Thank you also for families, um, especially Michelle being immediate family of Michael. We know that when we send missionaries out, uh, they leave families behind. And uh, it takes families and extended families like this one to encourage them and to rejoice and to receive them back um, into the fold. Father, we're so grateful for that and so many other things you've done through this congregation, uh, even worldwide, as a function of your grace, mercy, and of course your love. Father, we pray for those that are still sick in the congregation, uh, those that are too ill to be here, that have ongoing chronic illnesses, Father. We just pray that they understand that our hearts are with them and that maybe soon you heal them. Your will be done, of course, and bring them back to us so that we can fellowship with them. We pray also for those that are still lost in this world, Father. We pray that you humble them by whatever means necessary before it's too late. We are most grateful and thankful, of course, for your son's work on the cross to make a morning like this even a reality for us. We do just ask for your blessings on this morning's message. May it be edifying for our souls. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Again, practice these things. Uh, if you recall, we had a 23-part series titled Undistracted Devotion to the Lord. Uh, and we ended up having our focus placed on two key things um, that are actually in this series title, this new series titled Practice These Things and the God of Peace Will Be With You. The two key topics are obedience, one that came with us, and practice. Obedience and the idea of practice. So I'll say it this way to cut to the chase first thing this morning. There is no such thing as obedience that isn't put into practice. Otherwise, it's nothing more than lip service. Something God despises. Again, obedience and practice. There's no such thing as obedience that isn't put into practice. Um, there's a host of presuppositions and definitions that we have to get correct when we talk about obedience because some people say, but I obeyed. Yeah, but your heart wasn't in it. That kind of obedience. Or I practice. Yeah, but you did it for religious reasons. You weren't really obeying, say, the law of all laws to love. You just did it to try to gain approval. And so you have to get your definitions right. And that's why we spend so much time doing what we do in Holy Scripture so that we're not duped or fooled into believing that things like obedience and practice are something that the world might define in our souls for us. So with that said, again, if, assuming we have the right definitions of obedience and practice in our souls by now, we should, there's no such thing as obedience that isn't put into practice. Otherwise, it's nothing more than lip service, something God despises. Matthew 7, 17 to 27 2 Corinthians 11, 13 to 15, 1 John 3, 16 to 24, James 2, 14 to 26, and then we'll finish with 2 Timothy 2, 15, which is a remnant of our last lesson on Thursday. So throughout the Bible, we read of disobedient individuals. That is apparent. Uh, there's a, a lot of accounts in the Bible that refer to disobedient individuals, even ones who let's say, pretend obedience, that pretend obedience, but the proof is in their lack of practice. Go to Matthew 7, 17, our first reference passage here on the 
principle on the board. Again, we often read in the Bible of disobedient individuals, even ones who, quote, pretend obedience. But, as Jesus said, the proof is in their lack of practice. And again, try to focus in on the biblical definitions of obedience and practice. Matthew 7, 17. So, every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree, excuse me, bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. In other words, God has no real tolerance for it. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire, so then you will know them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name cast out demons, and in your name perform many miracles? In other words, didn't we practice all these things, right? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. So you see, this that's totally uh, acceptable theology that Jesus was counting. He said, listen, yeah, that's, that's right. You did all the right things, but you actually, because your definitions are wrong, you're actually practicing lawlessness. So he said... I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Jesus knew that their obedience was garbage. You see. Because their practice was garbage even. Their obedience was garbage because their practice was garbage. Verse 24. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and slammed against that house, and yet it did not fall, for it had been founded on the rock. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. That would be like the person with the false uh, obedience, or the pretend obedience, the fake practice even, has a perverted definition of practice. A religious person, in other words. That's why religious... Religion never holds up under any pressure. You might see the most quote-unquote devout religious person, and then when someone dies, because they don't even understand what death is, they fall apart at the seams. It's like, wait a minute, why are you falling apart at the seams? Why is your entire world rocked? Why are you not rejoicing over someone who you believe is actually a believer and is in heaven with the Lord right now? That's, I'm not talking about mourning. That's fine. I'm talking about falling apart at the seams. Why is that? Because religion never holds up under pressure. I'm talking about people who, you know, go get dressed. They're probably in church right now in their Sunday best, and they do go through all the motions, and they practice, quote-unquote, all the right things. And then when pressure comes, they, they blow up. That's the house that can't withstand the wind and the rain. It's built on the sand because there's no real foundation. And then you got a, quote-unquote, what a lot of people would consider a simpleton in the faith. They don't, they don't even, maybe they don't even, maybe their intellect, their IQ is not even that high but they have all the faith in the world towards Jesus Christ. And they're immovable. The rains come and and they're just like, I have faith. Lord will take care of it. Go figure. Verse 27, The rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and slammed against that house on the sand and it fell. And great was its fall. Just like every religion when it's toppled in the soul of an individual. It topples hard. It falls hard. Religion tends to build things up towards heaven, right? That's the imagery of the Tower of Babel, right? Trying to make your way up to heaven, build your way up to heaven. Well, if that tower is really tall because you've been at religion for a long, long time, you're putting a lot of bricks and mortar in there, right? And you're building it up and building it up. When it falls, it falls hard because it's tall. That's a good picture of religion. And that's why it takes some people who are ultra-religious a long time, even, in their conversion because they built so much. And it's a difficult thing to accept when the whole house of cards comes down around you. It takes a lot. There's a lot of pride involved, a lot of arrogance involved. And so we have to show some, um, some mercy and some patience towards individuals like that, even though we totally reject what they stand for. You understand? 
Nonetheless, this lesson is for us. Obedience and practice up here on the board. There's no such thing as obedience that isn't put into practice. Otherwise, it's nothing more than lip service, something God despises. As the Spirit's been reiterating since the Gospel Reload back in October of 2015, there are those who claim to represent Christ, but they do not. They claim, but they do not. Go to 2 Corinthians 11.13. 2 Corinthians 11.13. And so what the Spirit's really doing, He's forcing you to think critically about these two words, obedience and practice. He's forcing you to make sure that your definitions are good on both of these topics. That you're neither a pretender or a religious person. You understand? That type of a thing. 2 Corinthians 11.13 For such men are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. No wonder. For even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Therefore it is not surprising if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, whose end will be according to their deeds. Go figure. You see, there's an awful lot of religious people out there that actually wear Christian paraphernalia, call themselves Christians day in and day out. People at work, their friends, their family know them as a, quote, Christian. But yet, they're nothing more than disguises. Nothing more than disguises. The proof is in the pudding, as they say. Go to 1 John 3.16. 1 John 3.16. 1 John 3.16. I hope you see what the Spirit's saying here. There's a lot more to this than He's allowing me to say. Um, So hopefully you'll be good diligent students and go home and think about this and maybe review the scripture we're covering. 1 John 3.16 We know love by this that he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. Is the great call to practice, right? Let us not love with word or tongue, but in deed, in truth, practice. We will know that by this that we are of the truth and will assure our heart before him in whatever our heart condemns us. For God is greater than our heart and knows all things. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do the things that are pleasing in His sight. This is His commandment, that we believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as He commanded us. The one who keeps His commandments abides in Him, and He in Him. We know by this that He abides in us, by the Spirit whom He has given us. Again, there's the idea of obedience and practice. There's no such thing as obedience that isn't put into practice. That's what John was saying there. That's what he was writing about. How do you say you have love if you see a brother in need and you just ignore him? doesn't mean you always have to, quote, meet that need, but there's got to be some kind of soulish good response to need. Sometimes in my case, I, get, I see needs all the time. I have to say, okay, I'm going to help or I'm not going to help in the, in the, from, from a human's perspective because sometimes you help somebody and you're really enabling them, that type of thing. So you have to use your own discernment. James... Uh, cuts right to the chase on the absolute connection between obedience and practice. The gist of his discourse is simple. Obedient people are those of the faith, and those with faith produce good fruit. And without such evidence of faith, one can logically conclude that their faith is dead, as James would say. That their faith is dead. Go to James 2.14. James 2, verse 14 And so all these things lend themselves to this relationship between obedience and practice, and practice and obedience. James 2.14, you have to get your definitions correct, they have to be biblically founded, 
And then you have to understand the, the relationship between those two biblically founded definitions. You get really perverted. I've had some interesting discussions as of late on definitions again. Because I actually, and I've taught this before, I think I've even written a blog on it. Satan typically undermines um, forward progress in the faith by perverting definitions. That's usually how he does it. He gets you to think that one thing means something else. Or he inserts a definition from the world on something. What's the big one? Love. Here's a romance novel. This is love. Here's a ridiculous teeny bopper movie. This is what love looks like. Here, go to the club. This is what love looks like. Right? Do you get what I'm getting at? And people assume that as the definition of love, and it's not, it doesn't look anything like the love in the Bible. But yet people accept it, so-called Christians, who are so-called obeying. But they're really not because they don't read their Bible, because if they read their Bible, they'd understand what true love actually is. So they're really not obeying. Do you understand what I'm saying? They're obeying the world's definition. Their, their obedience is founded on definitions that aren't even biblical. What does that leave you? It's the house on sand. If the foundation's crap, okay? I know Sunday morning. If, if the foundation's no good, you could build the greatest, most magnificent-looking edifice on top of it, building on top of it, and as soon as the winds come and the rains fall, it washes away. It just gets eroded away, and the whole thing comes down. That's what the Spirit's trying to say. Get your definitions right, because everything you learn beyond that is based on definitions that you have, right? Those are the foundations. And Satan likes to change definitions, because if you can change the definition, he affects everything above it. So, James 2.14. What use is it? Oh, you're there, right? James 2.14. What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works? Can that faith save him? See, there are some people who say, I have faith. Are you sure? I have faith. Yeah, and you know, so did the guys that flew b planes into buildings. So are guys that blow up buildings. So are people that do this. You know, so are people that they have faith. It's misguided. That's the problem. It's not the faith that God wants you to have. It's not the faith from God. It's faith in something from the God of this world. What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but he has no works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and be filled, and yet do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? So, see, James is, James is framing up a, a, a vapid faith, a faith that just... It looks like um, a ghost, if you will. It's empty faith. It would be just like uh, if you think of a three-dimensional cube, all you would have was the outline, you know what I'm saying? Like a metal stick frame outline type thing, and that's your faith. It kind of looks like faith. It's got the shape of faith, but it's completely empty. There's no substance to it. That's what he's saying. There's no weight to it. That's what he's describing. Verse 17, Even so, faith a la faith that follows Jesus, or obeys, if you would, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. But someone may well say, you have faith and I have works, show me your faith without the works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well, the demons also believe and shudder. In other words, great, even the demons. See, people say that. See, I believe in God. I believe God exists. I believe this. I believe that. All right, that's a good start. But the demons do too. I know my Bible. I read my Bible. I can, I can quote Scripture. Yeah, and you know who can do it better than you? A demon. If Satan was here right now, he would blow your mind. He wouldn't even need to pick this up. He'd go, I don't know. He'd say 2 Corinthians 5, 10 says this. Boom. You'd be like, what? Well, let me give you in the original language, too. Bump. You'd be like, what? 
See, that's that intellectual thing that people like to do when they get lawyering. Do you know what I'm saying? They get into the lawyering phase and they say, I understand this and I understand that. That's great. So do the demons. So what's the distinction between you and a demon? What's the distinction between you and the one Jesus said, get away from me, I never knew you, who practiced lawlessness? What's the difference between you and those people? Because you know what? They knew the Bible too. Matter of fact, the Pharisees and the scribes and even the lawyers, they were all, and the Sadducees, they knew the Bible better than most people walking around, and most of them were in hell, as far as the Scripture says. You know what I'm saying. So that can't be the, that can't be the true litmus test. The, true, the truest litmus test is love. Biblical love, not Fabio. Teeny bopper, the club love. Like, true... <laughs> True biblical love. That's the litmus test. I'd rather take someone who's got three verses in the Bible memorized and doesn't, couldn't tell you anything else about the Bible but has true godly love than someone who has the entire Bible memorized, you know, like Satan, and has no love for the brethren. This is the one I believe is saved. I think this one's not even. You shall know them by their fruit, right? He was talking about the intellects of the time. So there you go. You believe that God is one, you do well. The demons also believe and shudder. But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac, his son, on the altar? You see that faith was working with his works. And as a result of the works, faith was perfected or matured, completed, came to fruition. I taught a whole series on that, right? That faith has to be uh, put to the test to be uh, real, to be, I use the word, consummated, if you would. Verse 23, And the scripture was fulfilled which says, And Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. Don't just have a framework, a stick frame version of faith. That's not going to fly. Don't just do the things that look good on paper because you're a whitewashed tomb. There's got to be substance to your faith. That's what James is saying. And if there's no real substance to your faith, then it's useless. It's dead. It's no good. So he says, you see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. Verse 25, in the same way, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works? When she received the messengers and, and sent them out by another way? For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. What's the body? It's just a vessel, right? When we think of the body, when we think of this thing, that's why the Bible refers to it as a vessel. A vessel is empty. Right? So empty the thing. What do you got? You just got a little hollow framework. That's what he's describing. What if you have faith on the outside? It looks like faith, but it's hollow. It's dead. It's no good because there's no real substance to it. How do you know? Because you don't ever do anything out of love. Even, even the things that you're doing, our religiosity. You're doing it to seek approval from God. Like you can work your way into heaven, that whole thing. That's not, that's not what we're talking about when we talk about the point on the board. Obedience and practice. There's no such thing as obedience that isn't put into practice. Otherwise, it's nothing more than lip service. Something God despises. Now, finally, we, become, we come upon the key verse we ended with on Thursday, Go to 2 Timothy 2.15. 2 Timothy 2.15. So we ended here on Thursday. <clears throat> 2 Timothy 2 <clears throat> Timothy 2.15 reads... Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed. 
who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. Suppose you were a, um, I don't know, a contract like DJ or something like that, and your, your game was building houses, right? And all you ever did, and you know, let's say uh, you're building a, a, I don't know, a, 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 what are you, a subdivision. So you, build, you put on a road, and your model house looks absolutely amazing on the outside. And you say, come on in, let's check this place out, see what it looks like. And it's all, you know, just frames and studs. What, what does that mean? Are you going to be ashamed or are you going to be proud of that thing? <laughs> just a facade. Boy, you really look good on the outside. This subdivision started off good, but then I went on the inside and it was just studs and wood and nails and dust. That's what James is getting at. That's what Paul's getting at here. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed. Don't be one of these. Don't be a, a, a vapid Christian. There's a whole lot of those out there. There's a whole lot of them out there. And some of them really do have a lot of Holy Scripture even maybe memorized. How's that work then? How do you have that much Holy Scripture, say like Satan, memorized, and yet you still miss the mark? Isn't that what we just saw in Matthew 7? How do you, how do, you do all these things? and still miss the mark? How do you study so much and still miss the mark? You understand what I'm saying? Those are the kind of questions that are impregnated into this one verse. Be diligent. That, that presumes humility. If you're one of these people that goes into the Bible with preconceptions, that's arrogance, by the way. You go into the Bible and you say, I already know everything. I'm only going to go here to, to reaffirm what I already know to be true. But wait a minute. How do you already know that to be true? I feel it. I sense it. I had a vision. No, you didn't. Read the Bible and be open. That's how it works. And trust you me, your, your expectations are going to get reset every time you open up the Bible. Every single time. If you're diligent, if you're arrogant, you only go here to prove your points, to prove that what you feel is already true, you're going to read this one way, and you're going to end up like the Pharisees. Jesus say, I never knew you. I saw you opening up your Bible daily, but I also saw your heart, and your heart was perverted. You were just looking for ways to affirm your own personal conjectures, and your own private sensibilities about who my father is. And the guy you're looking for is not in this book. And that's how people are. That's why they're not diligent. Because they go with presuppositions about what they're going to find. And they don't want to give them up. Because then the whole house of cards comes down. You know exactly what I'm talking about, right? You probably, everybody in here probably knows somebody, at least one person like that. Big, tall house of cards. Maybe knows a lot of scripture. But is unwilling to actually be humbled by the word of God and learn. Jesus despises that stuff. That's exactly why he called people whitewashed tombs. All one word. Isn't that funny? That's how a pastor thinks, by the way. I see be diligent. All that goes through my head at once. Be diligent. What does that mean? What's implied by be diligent? The world will just tell you do the right things, say the right things, right? God says, I see your heart. I want true diligence. I want you to be open to instruction. I want you to be open to what the word reveals to you. Be diligent to present. Peristemi, take your marching orders, right? Be diligent, show up, be humble, and then I'm going to give you your marching orders. You take them. You take them at face value, too. Stop trying to twist them. You see that? Look at that. What's that? Four words. Be diligent to present. Four words. I've been on it for, what, three minutes already? That's why I tell you to go home and decompress these lessons. That's why I tell you to go home. 
and spend time with these lessons. And if you've got to listen to them twice, do it. Because I can spend three minutes on four words. It's really probably two Greek words. I'd be, yeah, it is. Two Greek words. If I can spend now four minutes on two Greek words, uh, don't you think you can spend a little more time than that on a whole lesson? And don't you think that somehow relates to obedience and practice? Doesn't that somehow relate to the topic on the table? You bet. That's what the Bible tells us. Be diligent to present. Show up faithfully with humility. Take your marching orders. Show up diligently. Take your marching orders. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed. Because a person who doesn't do those things, you get the point. Accurately handling the word of truth. Accurately handling. Here's the principle I gave you on Thursday. This is where we ended. You can't handle something you don't have a handle on. You can't handle something you don't have a handle on. In other words, if you don't read your Bible, what is it you're going to handle? If I say to you, hey, can you do me a favor and take my uh, Burt's Bees to my office? What's the very first thing you're going to say to me? Can I have it? What if I say, take my Burt's Bees to my office, but you can't have it? I can't do that thing you're asking me to do. Exactly. How are you going to accurately handle something you don't have a grip on? That's the whole point. That's the whole point. See, Satan's smart enough to set up whole religions that say you don't really need the Word of God. Just be emotional about it. I wonder what they say when they read that passage, 2 Timothy 2.15. When they get to be diligent to present. When they get to accurately handle the word of truth. What do they say to themselves? They lie to themselves. That's what they lie. They, they say that to them. They just lie, basically. That's the only thing I can come up with. But that's where we ended up on Thursday. You can't handle something you don't have a handle on. And I'll say this as gently as I can. Um, but no matter what, it's going to be an indictment on some of you. And that's cool because as long as you're diligent and you show up humbly, you're okay because you'll just get readjusted. If you're a filthy person spiritually, you have either never had a handle on the truth or you are currently in refusal of it. If you're filthy spiritually, you have either never had a handle on the truth, which is a greater tragedy, or you are currently in refusal of it, which in its own right is a great tragedy. To whom much is given, much is required. There's no traipsing around in the spiritual life expecting to optimize your sanctification while living in known sin. And in particular, this particular sin we're talking about is disobedience. You can't expect to optimize your sanctification while living in disobedience. That's what the Word of God tells us. To disobey in any way is to act against the will of God. If God states in Holy Scripture that He wants you to do this, then you should. And if He says in Holy Scripture He doesn't want you to do that, then you shouldn't. And it's just that simple. That's why we keep getting this. This is like the, probably the fifth time this has come up, this one uh, slide. Obedience. This is why it's so important to obey. If he says do this in Scripture, then do it. If he says don't do that, then don't. And if God the Holy Spirit convicts you to do something, you should do it. And if he convicts you not to do something, then you shouldn't. But the baseline where the substance comes in, something that the Spirit can even work with, is in the Bible. So open your Bible and start reading. Again, to our previous point, 2 Timothy 2.15, be diligent to present yourself approved. And when you open your Bible, like I said, be diligent, which carries with it humility. To present, parastemi, to receive your marching orders. 
In other words, go there as an open book. Go there without any, um, uh, what's the right word? I guess. Thank you. Hey, you want to come up and teach? He's like, nope. I'm happy back here. Don't go any, with any ulterior motives. Don't go in there and say, I already know what I want to find, so let me just fish through all of this until I find it, and then I can like, you know, patchwork it together and come out with the doctrine that I came to the Bible with just to prove that my doctrine, so I don't have to crash my house of cards down because that one doctrine that I need to substantiate, if I pull it, it's like at the very bottom, you know, like at the house of cards, if I pull that one, the whole thing goes, and I don't want that to happen because I'm arrogant. Hmm. So you're kind of like the demons. Yeah. Up here on the board. Regarding 2 Timothy 2.15, you can't handle something you don't have a handle on. Your sanctification requires positive decision-making. If you have refused to obey, for example, this vessel's ongoing exhortation to read your Bible on your own time, then your misery is present, or will be, for a known reason. I've literally just explained it to you. Whatever's unsettled in your soul, whatever it is you have to um, self-medicate on, you know, pop a few back, shoot a little. I hope nobody's shooting anything up, but I don't know. Leo's laughing, which I don't know what's going on. Over here. Leo, I'm just going to leave that alone. Do you know what I'm saying? Whatever you're doing to self-medicate, you know, you're involved in your love life, you know, it's guy after guy or lady after lady or whatever, or, you know, whatever it is you're self-medicating on, something to distract you from the pain itself. You wouldn't have to do that. You wouldn't have to do that if you just obeyed. That's the whole point. I was reflecting on this. I think sometimes we get so caught up in our lives that we reek of the stench of the world and we don't even realize it anymore. We don't even realize it anymore. Every so often I have to use um, Shawnee's little truck to go to like Home Depot and pick stuff up and it reeks in there. Because he's an athlete, right? And he goes in there, his gym clothes, and it reeks. He goes in and he's like, nah, I, don't, I don't smell anything really. You know, I know it stinks, but I don't know. I go in and I'm like, oh, what's the problem? He lives in his own stench. <laughs> sorry, bud. I'm sorry. Right? It's true, though. Sometimes we reek of stench. We don't even realize it anymore because we've been living with it. And then it takes somebody else to go, whew. <laughs> go to Proverbs 132. We've, in my notes, it says we've become accustomed to our own stank. <laughs> it's true. It happens all the time. And sometimes it takes, this is one of the values, one of the absolute values, I believe, of a pastor teacher. Is that I can actually say to you, you smell, spiritually. You smell. And you have to say, I, I do. I didn't realize it, but I do. It's one of my, it's one of my awesome, the awesome parts of my job. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Proverbs 132. For the waywardness of the naive will kill them. In the complacency. See, we get complacent. Proverbs 132. We get complacent which means we just sort of sit there in our own stench. The complacency of fools will destroy them. Destroy them. Go to Proverbs 13.4. Uh, 13, 4. The complacency of fools will destroy them. And you can be just complacent in a lot of ways. You can be totally complacent and be busy 24-7. Playing the religious game even. Because you're not really diligent. You're just going through the motions. But you're spiritually complacent. Because you're not open to change. You're not open to being adjusted. 
Proverbs 13.4, the soul of the sluggard craves and gets nothing. Right? Craves and gets nothing, but the soul of the diligent, you see that word? Same word. Is made fat. You see, I'm hoping my prayer every Sunday morning, every day this place is open, is that you walk out of here and you got a big old pot belly spiritually. A big old pot belly. Because you're diligent and, and you're taking this in and you're digesting it and you're getting filled up and you're being made fat. That's my prayer. That's why I do this thing I do so uh, um, joyfully in a way. Do you know what I'm saying? Like I'm encouraged by, I know probably someone in here is not because God knows what they were doing last night, but I'm assuming most of you are getting a nice good meal and being diligent to present. Being diligent, you hear, I want it to be humble to present. You're receiving your marching orders. At this point, and this is very sound advice for some of you, you just need to wash your feet like Jesus said. Wash your feet like Jesus said. The Word of God has a cleansing effect on the soul. This is why <laughs> he says, obey by taking in the Word of God. Read your Bibles. The reason I keep telling that bald guy to keep getting in your grill and say, read your Bibles, read the blood, read wherever there's scripture, read, go to class, do everything. There's a reason why. Because the Word of God has a cleansing effect on the soul. It washes you. Because you stink. That's the whole point. The imagery is sloshing through sewage. Sewage splashes. It gets all over your feet. They had open sandals back in the day. It was all over their feet. That's why they washed their feet. Because they stunk. Who wants to smell someone's sewer feet at the table? Not to be gross. That's the whole point. What are you doing right now? You're dining on the Word of God. Wash your feet. The Word of God has a cleansing effect on the soul. Its effects begin with positional sanctification, of course, but the effects stretch into phase two of our sanctification also, progressive experiential sanctification. We recall the term sanctify carries with it a cleansing, purification, washing notion. Let's go, to, uh, go back to Ephesians 5.25. Ephesians 5.25, this is a review, so I'll go somewhat quickly. We saw this on Thursday evening, this little side note on sanctification being purification and cleansing. And God wants you to be clean, you see. He wants you to be cleaned daily so that He can sanctify you. Because when He sanctifies you, it brings glory to Him. In Jesus' prayer in John 17, He says, Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. That's what we're doing right now. That's what it means. Ephesians 5.25 Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her. How's that work? Having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. Right? I just quoted Jesus' prayer in John 17. Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. Wash them with the word, in other words. That's the known value of the word. It washes us. Up here on the board. <clears throat> By the washing of, the, of water with the word, the word of God has a cleansing effect. It, quote, washes us, sanctifying, purifying us. This is why it is so very important to receive it into our souls. And don't forget, be diligent to present. A lot of people can read the Bible, including the demons. Even, quote, scripture does not mean they've received it. This is why it's so very important to receive it into our souls. Read it, hear it, be humble towards it. 2 Peter 1, 2-3 up here on the board is the reference. Grace and peace be multiplied to you. In other words, the fruit of doing these godly activities. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Well, where do you get that knowledge from? Reading your Bible. Taking in the Word. Your word is truth. It sanctifies us. 
seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness, that's that Greek word, eusabiah, through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. Again, look at verse 26, Ephesians 5. So that he might sanctify her, having uh, cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. The concept of sanctification, as we've noted, goes all the way back to the Old Testament, where cleansing and purification of priests and even sacrifices were the foreshadows of what we enjoy spiritually today. Remember, our message title is Practice These Things, and the God of Peace will be with you. Kind of hard to be at peace, if you would, if you're filthy. If you're clean, if you're washed with the Word, you have more peace. Doesn't that make sense? If you're filthy spiritually, doesn't that imply the loss of peace? Of course it does, because you stink. Even your relationships will be affected, because you stink. You see? And God might work through good people, like those sitting to your left and your right in here. People that actually care about you. People that aren't willing to give lip service. They might lean over and say, psst, you stink. And they're doing you a favor by telling you. Practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. Otherwise, the one on your right who's going, psst, you stink, maybe they get to stop. Maybe they're going to haunt you. Maybe they're being used as vessels. Maybe it's this vessel who just literally said to you probably five times, you stink, right? Happy Sunday. That's, I'm, I'm one of the best friends you have. You may not know me from a hole in the wall, but trust me, the fact that I'm standing here saying these things to you, that makes me a really good friend of yours. For real. Remember, it's Christmas soon. I'm just kidding. I'm just laughing. Come on. That's funny, right? Right. <laughs> I had to look. You guys got tight on me. I got to figure stuff out sometimes on the fly. You guys get kind of tight. It's like, oh, oh, oh. Practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. And recall also our opening principle this morning. So we haven't really strayed too far from this, you see. We really haven't. Obedience and practice. There's no such thing as obedience that isn't put into practice. Otherwise, it's nothing more than lip service, something God despises. As the message series title indicates, when we put our obedience into practice, the God of peace will be with us. When we put our obedience into practice, the God of peace will be with us. In the absence of the word, there's no promise. There's, remember, I, I've taught you this. Peace is conditioned. Joy is conditioned. In the absence of the word, there's no promise experientially, even though positionally there are promises. But he's not going to reward you. We don't have a God like that. He's not going to reward you for disobedience. He's not going to reward you with godly fruit if you refuse to take in the thing that actually washes you. He's not going to reward you for being like, remember on uh, Charlie Brown, Pigpen? He's not going to reward you for being Pigpen, spiritually. In the absence of the word, there's no promise experientially. Jesus stated this in analog form up here on the board. John 13, 10, part A. Jesus said to him, he who has bathed, who is saved, in other words, needs only to wash his feet with the Word. Do what you're doing right now. Take in the Word of God. Be diligent, though, to present, though. And this was that challenging question that was the follow-up on Thursday to John 13.10. If the holy God of the universe, Jesus Christ, says, wash your feet... Do you think maybe it's a good idea to listen to him? To obey? If he's saying, take in the word of God, be sanctified by it. If that was his very prayer to his father, and you go, eh, 
meh. I don't feel like it. I don't feel like it today. I'm in a mood. Do you really think you're going to get peace out of that attitude? Is that the vector that ends at peace? Like you're like, meh. Oh, yeah, look at that. I'm going in this direction. There's peace right over there. No. Meh. I don't really obey. He says that's misery. Oh, look at these marching orders. Because I got an attitude. You really think there's peace in that? I'm going to save you a little uh, beat down. No. No. So, just to put this to the practical test here. Practical test. Obedience practice, right? Just to put this to the practical test. Holy Scripture says this. Hebrews 13, 17, obey your leaders and submit to them. So, do you? How many times have I said, read your Bibles? I don't even know. A thousand? How many times have I said, read the blogs? Five hundred? Come to class. Get it when, you can't, when you're not here. Get it online. A bazillion? What happened? You're disobeying. I'm an under-shepherd, whether you like it or not. Under-shepherd means I have delegated authority. If I say do those things, you do them. Some of you are like, whoa, 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 mister. Mm -mm -mm. I don't even barely pay attention to my husband. I'm not going to pay attention to you. Yeah, I know. That's why you're miserable. That's why you remain miserable. I didn't write this stuff. That's, that's the holy word of God. Hebrews 4.12, it cuts deep, doesn't it? Cuts right to the marrow, right to the chase. That's what I love about Holy Scripture. There's no weight on my shoulders right now. None. It's awesome. I know what he's saying. He's saying, obey me. But that doesn't put the burden on me necessarily. It puts the burden on him. Because I wake up in the morning and go, this is your problem. You put me in this position, you know what kind of guy I am. You raise this jackass up to stand behind a pulpit, this has to be your problem. And I know it, and I say, it is your problem. So when, you know, when people like have that knee-jerk reaction, like, I'm going to pay him, submit to him. I don't even like those words. I kind of laugh about it in a way. In a sad way, though. Because I feel bad. Because I know that the fruit, the peaceful fruit of righteousness, is on the other side of obedience. And that's what I pray for. And that's why it says, so they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do that with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. That's the rest of it. So, when I, Christ's under-shepherd, say to you, dumb sheep, that's right, I called you dumb. That's right. I did. I'm going to say it again. You're dumb. And you stink. I'm trying to, I'm trying to get you going. See how I am? <laughs> Read your Bible on your own time daily. If I say that to you, and I, how many times I say it, I don't even know, and you refuse to obey, what might you conclude about peace being with you? I think you know the answer. And just as an additional side note, not only am I humble to him, requesting your obedience on his behalf. That's all I'm doing. I've expressed a certain humility toward all of you also. Go to Luke 6.40. Luke 6.40. I don't write this stuff, people. Just a bus driver. I'm so glad I didn't write this stuff. Because then the burden would be on me. Do you know what I'm saying? I'm glad I'm not the author of this stuff. Because then the burden would be on me. That's what I love about the Word of God. All the burden, all the weightiness is on Him. The Word. Luke 6.40 A pupil is not above his teacher, but everyone after he has been fully trained will be like his teacher. I'm the teacher. You're the pupil. Any questions? You may say, but I'm older than you. So? I've been studying the Word of God longer than you. 
So? So have the demons, and they still don't get it. It's a supernatural gift. You either accept it or you don't. If you don't like it, there's the door. I was thinking about that the other day. I bet you there's been, oh, man, what do you think, DJ? Five to ten times the number of people sitting here have gone through those chairs and aren't here anymore. Is that probably fair? Over the last decade, I'd say probably at least five times this number, maybe ten. Over the last ten years of the, when this ministry has been through this, these doors and gone out the other side. Some stayed for a little while, but then they go eventually. Why? I don't know. Some have legitimate reasons. They just weren't in the right place. But a lot of them were just flat-out arrogant. Refused to submit. Refused to admit a simple point like this. That a spiritual gift, a spiritual God-ordained gift, has real power in their life. They refused to submit. Right? And most of them, on their way through, look at the man. Hmm. They do this number. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm pretty smart myself. Let me, let me look at you. Let me see. Mm-hmm. Your breast's pretty good. You know. Yeah. I think I'm going to move on. I think I'm, uh, I'm not going to submit. I just bebop around like morons. You understand what I'm saying? A lot of them really are arrogant. And a lot of them have a lot of scripture memorized. They don't want to accept the truth. You see, they're not diligent. They're not diligent with the underlayment of humility. You see? That's the difference. That's why you're all here. That's why I love all you guys. You guys are here faithfully, most of you, right? I don't know what's going on over here. It's a bit of a distraction today. I'm just going to, I'm not going to lie. It's a bit of a distraction over here. It's like a huge chasm. If it wasn't for those three spiritual giants back there, this whole side of the boat would be like flipped up. All right, thank, thank you guys. Thank you. Jeremy's like, it's all me. <laughs> I know Noah and Scott. I don't know about that guy. That's why I sit on the far edge. I'm like catamaran guy. Just hold the whole boat down. Where the heck was I going with that? Oh. Arrogance. Five times the people have gone through these seats. They just don't want to accept the truth. That's, that's it. They just flat out. Can we just call a spade, a spade? They just flat out don't want to accept the truth. It's that simple. I don't like the idea of having to accept that somehow, outside of my control, supernaturally, you've been placed above me. So they try to reason their way out from underneath authority. But I'm smarter than you. That may be so. Although I'd probably put you to task. I'm smarter than you. I'm better looking than you. Come on. Now we're getting stupid. Right? <laughs> Everybody's like, what's wrong with this guy? Right? Tammy's laughing the hottest. I don't know what to think. Right? I'm this. I'm that. I'm better than you. They're always trying to posture. I'm better than you somehow. So that I can actually, in human reason, dispel the supernatural fact that God put you there as an authority in the body of Christ. Those are the kind of people that come in and then they go out. A pupil is not above his teacher. I'm not saying I'm better than you. I'm just saying I'm here supernaturally. Can you accept that? There you go. If you can't, you should leave. Because a lot of people can't. And that's sad because they're the ones that don't have peace. Ever feel like, uh, and I'm digressing a little bit, but that's okay. You ever come here and just feel like I'm coming home? Do you know what I'm saying? You ever come through here and be just like, ah, oh, man, I'm home. Like, ugh. You know what I'm getting at? Like the holidays are coming up and it's supposed to be like Thanksgiving and half of you are going to be sitting there, Thanksgiving for what? These people are psychos, right? It's like, you know what I'm getting at? And then you come here and it's like home. It's like, man, you know what? I don't even know these people from Shinola. Right? You guys all laughed at Jeremy. Half of you don't even know who he is. You know who he is. You know what I'm saying? You just like wrongly judged him. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> right? Do you know what I'm saying? You don't need to know, though. What you know about Jeremy and that 
man, you guys are like magnificent over there. That trio of magnificence over there is that they're in Christ. That's all you really need to know. Amen? That's all you really need to know. That's all you really need to know about me. If you're not convinced of that, then honest to God, go somewhere else. But if you are, then obey. That's what it means to be. That's why I open up prayer all the time. Family, thank you for this family. Thank you for the opportunity to fellowship, to get together. We're so disparate. Our lives are so different. But God supernaturally somehow gathered us together, this eclectic group of individuals. Somehow, supernaturally, he got you here this morning with a halfway decent attitude. Granted, it required a little caffeine, but hey, you know. With a halfway decent attitude, you're here. To me, that's awesome. But you've got to respect the fact that there's, there are supernatural influences from the holy God of the universe that has accomplished all of this. This just doesn't happen. I know it's easy to say. You might say to yourself, oh, I know why this is the way it is. That guy's, you know a good speaker, or he's intelligent, or he's just dashing looking, and that's why he's up there. No, that's not why at all. That's not even close. Not even remotely close. There's a reason why you're sitting there. And I'm not going to pretend it's because you're so intelligent that you found the, quote, best church on the planet. It's because God drew you here. Somehow, Poor things. Right? Somehow you got drawn here. I just realized you're not Scott. I don't have my glasses on. I thought that was Big Scott, and it's actually Brian. It's because he cut, cut all his hair off. I can barely see you. Are you looking, you've been working out or something? I don't know, man. Maybe it's the, uh, that thing. What do you call that thing? This ask God? Yeah, what do you call that thing? What do you call that thing? thing people fly with? I don't know. Something's throwing me off with my bad vision. I'm sorry. All right? I'm sorry. Remember the family. <laughs> people is not above his teacher. Anyways. Hmm. When Jesus said, follow me, and then he assigned you an under-shepherd with his delegated authority, don't you think you should obey not just in word but in deed also? 1 John 3.18. Lip service is never enough. It just isn't. It's never enough. Hmm. Let's go real quickly through one passage. Uh, we still haven't been able to get through this uh, precious chapter in Paul's epistle to the church at Philippi. Let's, uh, let's try to get through that, and then I'll close up. Philippians 4.4. 4. Go there quickly. It feels like I keep leaving it dangling. <clears throat> so we'll just read through this thing and we'll close. Philippians 4, verse 4. Such an amazing chapter. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your request be made known to God up here on the board. But in everything, this means that everything in your life should pass through the divine filter or lens of the word. As a shepherd counts his sheep under the rod, so our great shepherd accounts for our every word and deed. Colossians 3.17 up here on the board reads, Whatever you do, in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. Again, verse 6, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Remember, there's peace in obedience, verse 7, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Perspective is everything. Here it is, verse 8. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence and if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. 
the things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, his uh, message title, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. I think I'm going to stop there. Again, we have a dangling thread, but that's the Spirit's doings. Amen? All right, let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this wonderful time to fellowship together as family. Thank you for washing us with the one thing able to wash over us, that is your word, the word of truth. Father, thank you for sending your Son. Thank you for revealing to us his heart, that he prays for us, that he intercedes for us that His Spirit intercedes for us when we pray even, Father. We're just so protected by You. Thank You for this home, Father. We just ask for Your blessings as we take the things that we've learned out to a lost and dying world, Father, that needs it so desperately. We ask these things in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Thank you.